We have a warning about the sound. It's a little bit off. Sorry, we'll have it fixed next time. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to part two of Oscar podcast episode 74. I'm here with Craig Kennedy and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone. And we're starting all the way back at the beginning um, of the formation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, starting with 1927 and 28, and we're going to work our way through the 30s, and then up through the 40s, and then the 50s and 60s. I think we started our podcast with the 70s, so we have that many decades to go, which should take up a good deal of time. Um, but we can start with... Uh, with, with the formation, the famous formation of the Academy, which, as the story goes, Louis B. Mayer um, was, you know, mogul, moved here from Russia, import. So really, Hollywood is formed of immigrants, I would say, from other countries. Mm-hmm. And um, Louis B. Mayer, uh, he was very powerful, and, and movies were making money, and, star, you know, stars were getting paid, and the studios were reaping a lot of the profits. But the a lot of the uh, crafts people were forming unions to protect them, to give them pensions and, and uh, I think health care maybe or something like that. And he didn't like that because he saw the future and he said, well, pretty soon the actors and the writers and everybody else is going to want a union, so we better do something to combat this. I think it had something to do with building a beach house of his, um, which is still there, by the way, a beautiful beach house, which has its own really crazy history, um, including Marilyn Monroe living there and all kinds of the Beatles, I think, lived there at one point. But Yeah, Mayor had his, uh, the MGM art director, Cedric Gibbons, draw up um, blueprints for this beach house for himself, and then he wanted to have the craftspeople, the architects and the craftsmen from MGM go build it for him, mm-hmm. and when he found out how much they were going to charge, he found out that it would be cheaper if he went outside the studio because the studio had already unionized and so that's what made him think that right. well you, these you, this union thing has got to stop yeah and um the eventually of course the student he wouldn't be able to do anything about the unions but in the meantime he wanted to form um he wanted to form this institution that would be a, a mediator for disputes for financial disputes um and, and awards were kind of a secondary thing they, they sort of came up later but initially, it was it was to be this like you know this grand organization that would mediate disputes that I think he thought would subvert would would prevent people from needing unions in his mind. That's what he was thinking. It also was to um, uh, to kind of puff up their their uh, uh, what's the word honor because they the Hollywood was so like sort of racked with scandal at that time. Like there were all kinds of crazy shit. Like I think uh, Charlie Chaplin was was. Uh, was famous for like saying he liked oral sex at a time when nobody even knew what it was and you know he had gotten the, some the, the relationships of people shacking up together and getting divorced and hooking up with other people's husbands and wives was publicized because it was good gossip and also there were things like you said there were absolute scandals that were went nationwide like the fatty arbuckle thing the manslaughter thing right. and so hollywood was start, starting to get a really tired rep- reputation so as you say they wanted to do something that would elevate the prestige of the m- movies again in people's eyes because they were worried about that right that's the perfect way to put it, prestige, um, and and that the academy was to do that. Well, um, you know, he he formed this thing called it the uh, uh, first. It was the International Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and then they took off the international, and it just became the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And they they were going to have an annual banquet uh, to get members. And I think Douglas Fairbanks was named the first president of the academy, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And um, they 
they you know invited all the all the the leading members of the industry to this banquet right and and they each paid a hundred dollars to become academy members and at that point they had their academy and what what they would do is they decided to give out awards to you know to films that were you know considered great productions that made money and um achieved artistic greatness i think that's where we are um Mm -hmm. it says um it's interesting how it expanded. First, Mayor had a little private meeting at his house. He had invited like three or four people of his of his closest MGM pals, uh, MGM's top director Fred Niblo, and Sid Grauman, who is a, a producer as well as owning the Grauman's uh, chain of theaters and everything, and one other guy. Uh, um, I think a. Uh, one of the one of the MGM's top actors, and he just invited those four people at first to run this idea by them, and they liked the idea. And then they had, like as you say, they had a, a banquet about a week later where they invited 36 people and had them all sign the original charter. And then after those 36 original founding members, they had a, the huge banquet where they invited like 300 people, right. and they invited anyone who had $100 could join. Yeah. And then it said each. Academy member would cast one nominating vote in his branch. They divided it up, I think, into five branches by that point. Um, mm-hmm. One name of the branches, they were producers, directors, writers, uh, sort of a, a blanket group called technicians, and that's four. What was the fifth? Actors. And actors, right? Yeah. Actors. Um, it said the, the, each Academy member would cast one nominating vote in each branch, period. Then a board, this is from Inside Oscar by Damien Bona and Mason Wiley. Then a board of judges from each branch would count the votes and determine the nominations, turning them over to a central board of judges. This central board was comprised of one representative from each branch, and these five people would pick the Academy Award winners. And the five people that first year were director Frank Lloyd, there was a, a writer named um, Tom Garrity. And Charles Vogue, who is a technician, Sid Groman, who, of course, we all know who Sid Groman is. And those were the five people who were responsible for choosing who the Oscar winners were going to be that year, just those five. But at, when they had the meeting, Mayer showed up to supervise, Right. of course, and, and because they, he wanted to be in total control. And they wanted from the beginning for it to be, quote-unquote, important. And in their rule book, they said, all members of the Academy are urged as a special duty and privilege to fill in their nominations for the Academy Awards of Merit with full recognition of the importance and responsibility of the act. Academy Awards of Merit should be considered the highest distinction attainable in the motion picture profession and only by the impartial justice and wisdom displayed by the membership in making their nominations will this desired result be possible. So it's really highfalutin sounding. They really wanted to make people feel like that they were part of an elite club, right? And they should yeah. be privileged to be a, mem- a part of it. And that way, Mayor hoped to keep people in line by flattering their egos, basically, by making yeah. them feel like that they were extra special members of a special elite club, which right. is not far different from the way that things are now. And, and they had to come up with categories, and this is an interesting paragraph to read, which is, coming up with categories for awards was tough, especially since Warner Brothers had introduced talking pictures with the jazz singer in late 1927. Because the talkie had caused such a sensation, the awards committee decided it was unfair to make silent pictures compete with it, and the jazz singer was ruled ineligible for either of the two Best Picture awards. The Best Production Award would go to the Most Outstanding Motion Picture 
considering all elements that contribute to a picture's greatness. On the other hand, the Artistic Quality of Production Award would honor the producing company or producer who produced the most artistic, unique, and or original motion picture without reference to cost or magnitude. I love that. So I, that's, yeah, that's, I love those descriptions because they're so, the way that they're so wordy and borderline pretentious. But it's also interesting that even from the very beginning, they seemed as if they wanted to make a distinction between movies that were, had popular appeal and movies that had artistic appeal. Right. right. That's what I love. I wish they would do that now. They really I know. Should, Wouldn't actually. that be great? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because if they hadn't done that, then, uh, I mean, I, I it, it, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. That's okay. But, um, yeah. If, if you look at the two winners of the, of the so-called Best Picture Awards, Sunrise and Wings, they're two completely different kinds of movies. One is sort of the Titanic of its day, and the other one is more like, I want to say L.A. Confidential, only because that came out the same year as Titanic, but it... It's almost it was like a big, splashy, historical epic that cost a lot of money, took forever to make, had famous people in it, and was huge at the box office. And the other one is a more intimate, more artistic, more soulful production. And if they had only gone with, with just, if they'd only gone with just wings, then I, I it, it would have, it, it just would have seemed wrong because Sunrise is such a much better movie. But it only got in because they had this extra category. And they, they and they kind of need to really rethink this. They won't, but last year is a great example of two movies that really shouldn't have to have split Best Director and Best Picture. You could have done that with Gravity and 12 Years a Slave. You could have given out two Best Picture prizes for that. Um, it's a great comparison. Same exact, mm-hmm. same exact um, tension. Yep. And another movie that may be a good parallel, or even maybe even better than... than, than um, L.A. Confidential would be a movie like Tree of Life is a lot like Sunrise. This has is more of a, a movie that's more poetic, right? Yeah. The other reason the other reason I picked I was trying to think of a perfect metaphor and I chose L.A. Confidential because it came out the same year as Titanic. Oh, but even Titanic yeah, right. is not even really a good comparison with Wings. It's just mm-hmm. I, I was struggling to find an apt metaphor and I didn't quite get what I wanted. But yeah, what you're saying is true. And so. It's hard. Back then, they had they had silent comedies were popular, so they had to have two directing categories, something they would never consider today, which is they had comedy directing and directing. You know, um, <laughs> right. so they split those yep. up. They they split them up for quite a while until they decided to just give out one prize for directing. Comedy was just the bread and butter of studios back then, and we also should mention too that the studio idea of having these five major studios was a relatively new thing. Only 10 years previously, and, and like, just think back before 1927, 10 years before, in 1916, 1917, feature films were a brand new thing. And all of the studios, none of them existed, but between, except between 1918 and 1923, all of the studios formed from these different independent producers. So between, before 1918, there weren't any, any studios as we know them today. But after 1923, suddenly the same five studios that we have today were already in existence, which is yeah. pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah, the five but what I started to say was comedies were the bread and butter. These slapstick, one-reel comedies were the bread and butter of, of the movie industry back then. Right. And they had two writing categories. One was best adaptation and one was best original story. But then they decided at the last minute to add a third um, category for title writing <laughs> and mm-hmm. they had to staple the makeshift inserts into the printed ballot books after they, they decided that title writing, now that means for silent movies, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's so you know something very interesting about the category for best title writing, that the titles are, as you say, the, the printed titles that showed up on screen to help explain what people were saying during a silent movie and to help the audience keep track of the story. One of the nominees for best title writing that year was Herman J. Mankiewicz, mm -hmm. who was, uh, you know, Morrison Wells co-writer for Citizen Kane. Wow. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? The very first year of, of the Oscars there, he's already in play there. Yeah. Um, so those were the categories, and then they, they sent out a reminder list. Um, but the, the weird thing was was that they, um, it says, as the votes began to pour in the various boards of judges, um, the Academy discovered that members weren't paying attention to the reminder list anyway and were nominating films that were several years old, including Stella Dallas, <laughs> The Gold Rush, and The General, and voting had to be done all over again. Can you imagine they had to send the ballots, ballots back to everybody and say, no, there's a deadline, there's a cutoff between 1927 and 1928, and you can't just nominate any movie that pops into your head, yeah. so do your ballot over. It's amazing that that was even happening. And there was already weird gossip, because here from Inside Oscar again, it says, challenging Gloria Swanson at the box office was 21-year-old newcomer Janet Gaynor. Unlike the glamorous Gloria Swanson, a clothes horse who had been married three times by the time she was 30, Gaynor wore low heels and no makeup off screen and lived with her mother. Off screen, Gaynor had been a virginal heroine in three of Fox's studio's biggest productions. The most ambitious and expensive was Sunrise, made in Hollywood by German director F.W. Murnau. Subtitled The Story of Two Humans, Sunrise was a dreamlike parable about a poor farmer attempted by an evil city woman to kill his loving wife, uh, Gaynor. Sunrise was such a su success for Fox, but the money came pouring in for another uh, Gaynor vehicle, Seventh Heaven, a romantic melodrama set in Paris directed by Frank Borzage. Borzage? I think it's uh, Frank Borzaghi. Borzaghi. Mm -hmm. And co-starring uh, Charles Farrell. When gossip colonist Luella Parsons, the Oscar blogger of her day, of the Hearst Papers learned that Gaynor had been cast in the film, she wrote that the actress was too young and inexperienced to, tr to trust for such a fine property. Blanche Sweet is a more logical choice. Luella published an apology to Janet when Seventh Heaven was released and confessed her performance had moved her to tears. The public loved the combination of Gaynor and Farrell so much that Fox rushed them into another tearjerker directed by Borzaghi, Street Angel, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know, in fact, um, Charles Farrell and Janet Gaynor made seven movies together after that. They were such a hot couple. Wow. They were like, I hate, to, I hate to make the comparison, but it's almost unavoidable. They were like the Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper of their day. Yeah. They were that hot together that once they struck gold and had the chemistry, people wanted to see them together again and again. And Charles Farrell was quite a hottie, you know, for 1927. You look back at a lot of those, you know, early 20th century actors and actresses, and some of them look a little bit funky, but not him. He reminds me a lot of, um, like, uh, um, Army Hammer, Ar 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 the guy from uh, Social Network. He was like a big six foot four guy, strapping guy, chiseled face. He was really, he'd be good looking today. He would be, he would be really good looking even today. And he was a really good actor. You, you saw Seventh Heaven, didn't you, Craig? Yes. You can vouch for the fact that he that he he's really one of the better actors of his day. I think he really yeah. You know, I haven't seen him in a ton of different things, but he's got um, he's got a magnetism to him that you're right transcends. I think the time period. But for me, uh, I, I was focused more on Janet Gaynor, who I actually I really I really like your comparison of her to 
to Jennifer Lawrence because a she was super young. She was the youngest Oscar winner for until um, what's her name won for um, Marley Children Martin. of a Lesser God. Mm-hmm. But she just has a um, an unpretentious naturalism about her. She you compare her to like Clara Bow, who was the biggest box office draw at the time, and she was in Wings that same year. Um, who has sort of the stereotypical, over dramatic, exaggerated. Um, silent screen mannerisms that we associate with that even today, whereas Gaynor just didn't seem like she was acting. It just seemed like somebody happened to put a camera on her while she was doing her thing. It's so much more natural and restrained. I'm sorry, I changed the subject from Charles Farrell, but no, <laughs> that's kind I, of it, the it, tangent it, it, that I went off on. Yeah, we'll be jumping around a lot when we talk about this year because there's so much to cover, but I totally agree with you. Janet Gaynor's style of acting was totally different from the from the dramatic, stagey, histrionic, sort of melodramatic style that people were used to seeing, and that's why I think she struck gold with, with audiences and with the Academy and was 20th Century Fox's star then for the next decade because she was so fresh and natural. So now we get to... And, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You have to finish that. I was going to change the subject. I, I was just going to say, and I think because of that is, is partly why she continued to have success in the sound era, whereas Clara Bow and a lot of the other ones fizzled pretty much as soon as sound came along. Mm-hmm. So Janet Gaynor, was, her, her career lasted well into the 1930s and 40s. She was nominated again for A Star is Born, right, in the 1930s. Yeah, just great. All right, so now we get to the... We, the, the, uh, the, uh, the invention of the Oscar itself. So it says here in the book, as the Academy members filled out their nomination ballots, the founders of the Academy deliberated over what kind of trophy, plaque, or squirrel the ultimate winners would receive. Mayer left the design of the award in the capable hands of Cedric Gibbons. While Gibbons was an acad- at an Academy meeting listening to board members talk about the five branches and the need for a strong image for the film industry, he sketched away and then revealed his design a naked man plunging a sword into a reel of film. The five holes on the reel, Gibbons explained, represented the Academy branches. For the production of the statuette, the Academy gave $500 to an unemployed art school graduate named George Stanley, who sculpted Gibbons' design in clay. Uh, he then cast the, the statuette, um, and the award was ready. Now it was time for the first winners. I think some woman once said, that looks like, oh, a secretary at the Academy said, that looks like my Uncle Oscar, and that's how the Oscar got its name. Uh, mm-hmm. I think so. There's two, two or three different stories about how the Oscar got its name, but that seems to me the most reliable. It was the first secretary of the Academy said that it looked like her Uncle Oscar. Yeah. Betty Davis has tried to claim credit for that, too. Yeah. Her, one of her husband's middle name was Oscar, and she said that the Oscar statuette looked like it had her husband's ass, but nobody believes that story because it happened so much later. It was named after Oscar. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> she wanted to take credit for it. There was another, there was a, there was a columnist who was a, um, a, I guess basically a gossip column, Hollywood gossip columnist, who, for, who was the first person to use the word Oscar in print, which was, wasn't until 1934, if you can believe that. So it was quite a long time after the Oscars began when they, when it became commonly called the Oscar. All right, now I have to read this next part. I'm sorry, yeah. but it's so good. Um, it says, The Central Board of Judges met to decide the final winners on February 15, 1929. And who was there to supervise the voting but Louis B. Mayer? At 6 a.m. on February 16th, King Vidor's phone rang. The caller was Sid Grauman. 
the man who had built the Chinese theater and the representative of the producer's branch on the central board of judges. <laughs> he had the results. The central board had decided early on to give the artistic quality of production award to Vidor's The Crowd, but Mayer kept them up all night arguing against it. The Academy founder had reiterated one of the stated aims of the organization. It will encourage an it will encourage the improvement and advancement of the arts and sciences of the profession by the interchange of constructive ideas and by awards of merit for distinctive achievements. What kind of constructive idea did the non-glamorous picture like the crowd promote, the mogul asked, noting that the movie implied an average man could work hard and still not amount to anything. <laughs> Mayer thought the best choice for the artistic award was Fox's Sunrise. To Mayer's way of thinking, F.W. Murnau was a well-respected artist who would bring honor to the organization, and a Fox victory would prove there was no collusion between Mayer, um, the Academy, and MGM. By 5 a.m., the Central Board was sleepy and gave in. <laughs> That's an amazing story, you know. But it, 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 I, it's hard to argue with the fact that Sunrise won Best Artistic right. Quality of, of Production because it is such an outstanding, it's one of the top five or ten silent films ever made but if you see the crowd the crowd is so far in advance of other silent movies being made at the time the crowd king vidor's the crowd was like a movie you would see made in 1970 it is so unremittingly bleak and dark and sad it's a tragic story that that mayor did not want to have the first best picture winner be so sad and downbeat he wanted something that was more upbeat and 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 uh and optimistic, but The Crowd is a really dark, bleak movie. I love it to death. It's one of my favorite science mo uh, uh, silent films. But um, one thing the mayor didn't like about The Crowd, they lived in this tenement apartment, and the, the bathroom door kept falling open to the tenement because it was like a rundown place, and you could see the toilet. And it was the first time we'd ever seen a toilet on screen, and Mayor, the mayor called it that toilet movie. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that toilet movie win Best Picture. I just well, think it's, it's, it's ironic because it's his picture. He wasn't the director, yeah. but as the head of MGM, it was an MGM film, and yet even in its production, he argued against it because it was, it was bleak and it was dark, and that just wasn't his conception of of what a Hollywood movie should be. Even though critics loved it, it did well with audiences. Um, he he disliked it so much that he argued against his own film. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. I know it is amazing that he argued against his own film winning. And it's not as if the, the movie actually made money. It just didn't make as much money as he as maybe like Wings did. But it was a successful film. But he 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 actually. It's hard to believe that that the crowd would have won best artistic quality production that year if Mayer had not overruled it single-handedly overruled that that right. winning. I highly recommend that anybody can get your hands on the crowd to go seek it out and watch it. Yeah. It's hard to find because it's, there's not even a DVD of it right now. But there's a Chinese edition of the DVD that's available on eBay that you can buy for $5.90, and it's well worth the investment, trust me. And I just love the idea of them debating this artistic award of merit. I would love it if the Academy, it'll never happen, but I would love it if they put in their votes for all the awards, and then they had one big award that they would all debate and how could you do it with 6,000 people? You couldn't. But if you could just have some kind of a committee where they actually sat in a room and talked about it. I mean, I guess we Oscar bloggers, not to, I mean, we're, we're gross, I know. But I'm just <laughs> saying, like, we kind of do that discussing uh, and debating before they vote. But And maybe they do it, too. But how cool that they actually did that. They actually sat, sat around and considered... Right, the same way that maybe the newer film critics do when they decide on their best picture, right. they have they debate and, and argue it out the day of the that they that they make their 
that they give out their awards. Maybe the Board of Governors could do it, you know, or, or a group similar to the Board of Governors, like right. a jury, a special jury like the CAN yeah. jury or something. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's what the Board of Governors awards are, but it would be nice if they did it for the year at hand. You know, they say, mm -hmm. here's yeah. a special prize to Christopher Nolan for ambition for, you know, Interstellar, even though it's not going to get any other awards. You know, here mm -hmm. you go. I just think that would be really cool that they did. I'm not saying Interstellar won't. I'm just saying that. Right. So, I just wanted to reiterate, though, for anyone who wants to see a movie that is equally, that's equivalent to Sunrise as far as, 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 as uh, artistic beauty and poetry, the crowd is the movie that you should seek out that is really undervalued and are underappreciated after all these years. Oh, yeah. So the night, the, the winners were actually printed um, in a newspaper, I think. Um, they were printed... Uh, the Academy's own newsletter. In the Academy's the newsletter. Ca so, yeah, so the winners yeah. were printed with no fanfare, and they were going to have the ceremony later where people would show up, might show up, might not show up. Um, and, and nobody really talked much about them because people really didn't know how long they would last. Like, nobody really had any idea that it would still be going 87 years later, which it is, and, mm -hmm. and how big it would become and how important it would become and how prestigious it would become. I mean, for something that was just invented off the top of Louis B. Mayer's head because, you know, he was trying to, like, fight back the unions, mm -hmm. it sure turned into a, a huge institution. But there's just one little part here that I'd like to read, which says... Um, but one aspect of the Academy had become a tangible reality, the award itself. The little gold-washed gold statuette was thought by skeptics and art lovers a bit on the amateurish side, wrote MGM screenwriter Francis Marion. Still, I saw it as a perfect symbol of the picture business, a powerful athletic body clutching a gleaming sword, with half of his head, that part which held his brains, completely sliced off. <laughs> <laughs> so cynical and bitter, huh? I mean, you got to love it. The guy who spoke right? out against the Oscars from the very beginning. It's <laughs> oh, no. a great quote. Can we, uh, uh, since we're reading quotes, let me read a couple of things. I think you'll like this, Sasha. The two different things that Louis B. Mayer said. His official opinion of what the Oscars were going to be and then his private off-the-record no. thing that he said about the Oscars. First of all, his official thing he said in a statement in 1927... The awards have a dual purpose. One is that we want to recognize fine achievements, and the other is that we want to inspire those others to give finer achievements sometime in the future. So he was doing, he was trying to encourage people to make, to, to, you know, have, um, make these fine achievements. But then off the record, later on, he said about the Oscars, let me see if I can find this other quote. I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I gave them some awards, they'd kill to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Awards were created. <laughs> so great. I, you know, a total businessman, that guy. Yeah, exactly. I just love Louis If I gave him some awards, they'd kill to produce what I wanted. I'm sort of excited about the new Cohen movie, because isn't it going to kind of be their new movie? Isn't it sort of about this era of Hollywood, or is it later? Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly when it, I mean, I think it's the 1930s, isn't it? So it's right around this time. Yeah, I know it is. And, and, you know, they love the whole idea of the movie mogul with the cigar yeah. in his mouth. And, you know, it's, it's, it's lampooned a little bit in, in The Artist. Isn't that Louis B. Mayer in The Artist, John Goodman? Um, Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. And, of course, the Coens have done the same thing in, in um, Barton Fink, in lampooning the movie business in Barton Fink. I know, and these, these moguls, these, <laughs> like, you know, DeMille and, and uh, Louis B. Mayer, these guys that ran the studios. The studios were so powerful, and the stars were so powerful back then. Already, you could see that, they, that everything hung on their name, 
pretty much. It was mm-hmm. the studios and it was the stars. And you can one no wonder they all the, everybody else wanted to unionize. You know, <laughs> it's like they had no power. Right. But, um, they needed the union. You know, one of the things that that Louis Mayer feared so much the that is what the actor salaries would get out of control before when there were just these um, these. Um, Actors who had come, who had literally pretty much picked up off the street in Hollywood or in California, um, he, could, he felt like he could control those people a little bit better. But more and more professional actors from Broadway were coming to California, and there was already the Actors Union in Broadway, the Actors' Equity, right? And so he thought that they were going to carry the Actors' Equity with them from Broadway, and then he would be in really deep trouble because he'd have to start paying them extravagant salaries. God, that's so funny. I mean, he was so he was so uh, frugal, you know. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's all about the it's all about the bottom line. Right, right. I know, and and that's one one of the, the ironies of of Oscars in the modern age is that they're totally determined by the unions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, they're the guilds, right? The guilds, yeah, yeah the guilds. The starting mm-hmm. starting yeah. when I first started, it was really only the DGA, which always held sway over the Academy, going back to their beginning, which nineteen six. I can't remember when they started. 40s, 1945, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, yeah. The DGA uh, when they started giving out awards, and now the all of the guilds. The Producers Guild is kind of new. The Screen Actors Guild is kind of new. But you have these major guilds that announce way before the Academy uh, does, and they influence them completely. So that's the irony. I wonder what Louis B. Mayer would think of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine what he would think in the movie business know. nowadays. One, one thing you mentioned, the fact that when Cedric Gibbons designed the Oscar statuette, he had the five holes in the real film to designate the five different branches of the Academy. Every year, as there have been more and more branches added to the Academy, the Oscar statuette has changed, too. Like right now, there are 12 holes in the reel of film. The Oscar stands on a reel of film that has 12 holes in it to represent the 12 different branches. Yeah. So every year that they've added a new branch, they've changed the design of the Oscar statue. I just laugh about that, that because I know you're always getting on me about writing about three holes. <laughs> 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 Whenever I reference three holes, you always say, can we find a different way of saying that? <laughs> oh, dear. All Talk right. about, I'm sorry, I, mean, I just want to say this one thing. I know that Louis B. Mayer was instrumental, and absolutely, he was the father of the Oscars, but I, we want to give credit to, to William Fox for the very first Oscars, because when you look at the achievement that Fox film, and William Fox in particular, made, and the, the dent he made on the first Oscars is extraordinary. He won, um, Sunrise was a Fox production, Janet Gaynor was in Seventh Heaven, that was a Fox production, um, Fox cleaned up that year. Uh, Frank Borsegi, who won Best Director, was 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 Fox's star director. Yeah. Uh, William Fox, when he heard about F. W. Murnau um, making these movies like Nosferatu in in Germany, he absolutely he, he took a trip. He went to Germany to meet Murnau and invite him back to Hollywood to be Fox's star director. And when William Fox brought Murnau back to Hollywood, he introduced him around town as Professor Murnau. He introduced him as a professor, like he was a, a genius expert uh, extraordinaire of of, um, of the movie business. And he wanted Murnau to train all of his in, of, of his uh, Fox staff to make movies like the Europeans made them. He gave 
Murnau, like carte blanche to make Sunrise. He invested all of the studio, studio's resources to put behind Sunrise. He suspended every other production on the Fox lot during the time that Sunrise was being made, and he invited all of the directors who were sitting around twiddling their thumbs to go watch Murnau and to see how he made a movie so they could learn from him. And these guys are like John Ford, Howard Hawks, William Wellman. These guys, William Fox told them to go watch what Murnau was doing and learn from him. So imagine how they felt, you know? But that, but um, I really do feel like. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just gonna <laughs> semi-tangent. Yeah, go ahead, Craig. I I, just, I made the mistake of rewatching Wings right after rewatching Sunrise, and it's just, I, I I hate to minimize Wings because it was an amazing technical achievement and it was entertaining and it was fun, but Sunrise is just on such a totally different class of art, and I think that's because it was Murnau, and it's because. The Europeans, even back then, they were they were not thinking of movies as mass entertainment. They were thinking of it as a, and treating it like a whole other art form. And you had Murnau, you had Pabst, you had Lang, you had all those guys that were doing this amazing stuff. And and by comparison, the Hollywood stuff honestly seems a little bit cheap to me. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that about visual effects. I was kind of smiling looking here on the list of winners because right there by you know uh, they didn't. They didn't have special effects, but they had engineering effects. And Wings gets that. <laughs> so I thought, you know, that was in its day. That was an effects movie. And that's what it won. It won, it won for picture production, and it won for um, special effects. But how great, in the early first year of the Academy, that they were, had the wisdom to award two films for Best Picture for totally different reasons. I just think that is so brilliant mm -hmm. of them. It's been a long time since it's, I've seen it. It's Wings. too bad they got rid of the award that, that Sunrise got the next year. They stopped doing it. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I understand why they did it. Money, money, of course. They want one winner. Um, mm -hmm. but that, that makes for more money, obviously. But now, more than ever, I think it would be a really great time for them to revisit that because Hollywood is moving in such a drastically different direction now, and they really do need that second award. That would help them a lot. Um, and then they solve their problem. They, they seem to have this tension between they want to be taken seriously and and to to have the films are genuinely great, but they also want to be popular. And they've not been able to they've not been able to reconcile that. I mean, they started with the ten nominees because they were so concerned that the Dark Knight didn't get in. But then when Avatar did, they seemed to panic and want to try and clamp down again they need i think maybe you're right that having a a second sort of an artistic merit award would have been would be the way to go it would be and or to just have a special category an extra category for for big effects driven films maybe right mm -hmm. right but so let's just quickly talk about the studios the five families so it's mgm paramount united artists uh fox and what's the fifth one um, Columbia, Columbia, or, and then mm -hmm. I'm looking at the founding fathers of the Academy, and I'm seeing things like uh, First National and uh, I Independent, Pathé. What were those? Were those not studios? Those were. Those were. Those were. The, see, all even the five majors were were conglomerates of mergers that had happened just four or five years previously. There had been like 15, ten or fifteen different independent studios. That, and among them are the ones that you name. When you look at the founding fathers of the Academy, only about half of those names are familiar. But if you actually look up the names to find out who, who was this guy, they were all really big deals. They were pretty influential. They all had their own independent production companies. They had yet to be absorbed by the majors, though. Mm. I think that's, that's, that's the impression that I get. There, there's interesting that of, of the 
36 original founding fathers of the academy, there were two women. One of them was Mary Pickford, who was like the, you know, she was even founded United Artists. She was a really big deal. She was an actor. Even though she was an actor and a producer, when she joined the Academy, she decided to sign on with the producers. She didn't want to be associated with the actors. She wanted to be known as a producer. Oh, wow. The other woman who was a, the, one of the first founding members of the Academy was, her name is Bess Meredith. I'd never heard of her before, so I looked her up. She was a writer. She was a well-respected screenwriter. And the interesting thing that happened to her in 1926, just before the Academy was formed, there was a Hungarian director who moved to America and um, became a pretty big deal later on because he directed Casablanca. He was Michael Curtis. Yeah. Best, Meyer, um, best Meredith was married to Michael Curtis. Oh, wow. You know, women were really powerful in the early days of Hollywood, partly because they were the biggest audience, you know, um, mm -hmm. in the early days. Like, I, that's why I love Purple Rose of Cairo, because there's there's little Mia Farrow, you know, paying her money to see the movie in Depression Era, uh, you know. And, and when you're a powerful ticket buyers, as they are now, and they should be regarded as such, that gives them more, you know, a desire to have more women in the business, and they were definitely in the business at the very beginning. They were ticket buyers, but they, it was also it was, it, movies in America were still sort of a disreputable profession, and so fully half of the of the screenwriters back then were women. And it was only when sound came in and attendance doubled, and the cost of production started going up that women slowly and unfortunately started to get muscled out from actual jobs in the business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is a really good point, though, that there were so many female screenwriters in the silent era, and when you look at the types of movies that were made during the silent era, even including Sunrise and Seventh Heaven, they're both central, their central characters are the woman. It all, it all revolves around the woman and what happens to her. Well, yeah. I mean, as we're as we go through year by year, I did I did notice one trend that was I was building a chart on uh, Awards Daily. What I thought I would find was that women helming Best Picture winners would decline as men helming Best Picture winners would would um, go up. Mm. But what I found was in in both cases they both went down. So. What that tells me is that we go from the 1930s and 40s where stars were absolutely the most important thing, and then through the 50s and 60s and 70s and up to now, the star power diminishes. It really does. It's, it's other things. Director, I think, takes over, like the director of the movie um, becomes a bigger driving force than the stars themselves. But you really do see that if, as you chart it. But back then in the 1930s and the 40s, it was all about the stars and the best picture because they had, not this year, but mm -hmm. when we get more into kind of traditional Academy categories, when they have more than 10, 10 and more than 10 nominees, they're, it's pretty 50-50 men and women. Right. Another sad, very sad thing, it's almost, it just depresses me to think about, but there were actually five or six really well-regarded female directors in the 1920s. I could. I don't even. I can't even think of their names off the top of my head because they are so. They're not well known at all, and the reason why they're not well known is because so many silent films have been lost, and almost all of their films have been lost, and so people don't know about them because nobody can see their movies anymore because, they're, the prints of those films were lost or destroyed, and or or you know or burned up in fires and various things. But there were, I, I'll make a list of the five or six female directors who were really big deals back then and, and included in the comments when we post the podcast so that people will at least know that these women were making movies back then. But they've, that they, they're lost to history. 
their, their movies and their, their achievements are lost to history. Yeah. I mean, it'll be good to go through the years and to see exactly when that happened and why. You yeah. Know? Um, but, yeah, Mary Pickford, she was very powerful back then. The difference between Frank Borzaghi winning Best Director and, and, and uh, Marnot directing the Best Picture at the time reminds me of the way that things are now, where Monod was known, he was absolutely famous and, and, and sort of reviled for being such a strict taskmaster. He was really hard to get along with and really demanding and really cold, and he did, his English wasn't great, and he was just really hard to work for, and he didn't, he wasn't personable. He didn't have any charm or, or, or circle of friends in Hollywood. On the other hand, Frank Borzaghi was beloved. He was a charmer. He was a raconteur. He could tell a great story. He and his wife were... were at the center of the social sphere in Hollywood, and they were always throwing parties, and everybody loved Frank Borzaghi, loved to work for him, and so he was the guy that won Best Director. So it very much like this situation where we see today where a director who has a reputation for being cold is going to have a harder time with the Academy than a director who is everybody's best friend. Mm. I'm not going to name any names. You know what I'm talking about. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, so there were some complaints, I think, about... The fact that they that all the cat I, I can't remember exactly specifically what it was that they were mad about, but there was one win that that the academy members and the press were mad about, and and that made them want to change the rules to have all members of the academy vote. And I'm not sure exactly when that took place, what year that was that that took place. But I'm not sure either. We'll, 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 we'll look into that and we'll talk about it next time when we do 1928, when the change actually took place. But I agree with you. I think that there was a lot of resentment for the fact that it became, it was not a secret that Louis B. Mayer had his fingers in on the scale and he was had such influence that he was actually able to change the outcome of Best Picture. And people weren't fond more crazy about that idea. Right. They wanted it to be more democratic. It's just funny how uh, very quickly it becomes it becomes so contentious and powerful. And in mm -hmm. fact, I was just talking to on Twitter about this is the National Board of Review, which I did not research properly for this podcast, but mm -hmm. it did form right around the same time. And it they started out being um, like the MPAA, I think they were the they call themselves National Board of Censorship. Censorship, right. Yeah. That's how they started out, and and they formed right back then. So, uh, and very shortly thereafter, the Na the New York Film Critics formed. So pretty soon, film criticism is really going to start to become important. And it wasn't. It doesn't look like it was very important this first year. Mm -hmm. The National, you're absolutely right. We'll do. We'll, we should do a post about that. Maybe one of you or I both write it together, or or whatever. But, but it, since the National Board Review is coming up, and let people know a little bit about the genesis of the National Board yeah. Review too, mm -hmm. because they did start out as a cens as a yeah. as a censorship group. The way I look at them now is they're considered by many to be a shady organization. But the weird thing about them is just like the HFPA is. If you go back and look through their history, um, mm -hmm. they're pretty good choices all the way through, and, and there isn't a big difference between what the National Board of Review chooses and what the New York Film Critics mm -hmm. well, do. Every, every film that you watch will say at the bottom of it, uh, approved by the National Board of Review, and it was basically an agency that sprung up because Hollywood was still disreputable. They, they were trying to forestall censorship, and they were trying to be seen as wholesome... Hmm 
entertainment for normal people instead of this this terrible demoralizing thing and so that's sort of where the national board review came from mm-hmm. there was a certification if you had a certification from the national board review because they would actually take a movie and they could cut parts of it out and they could recommend to the studios that no this is not going to fly you have to take this out or you have to take this word out or edit this out and they were definitely a censorship group they took the censorship out of their name because that gave people that just has a bad ring to it. So it was better to say National Board of Review. But the way that they were able to establish themselves as a prestigious institution was because they they found their membership among college professors and academics and pretty some pretty smart people. So that's why their choices were so good. Wow. Wow. No kidding. So yeah. when they chose back, Best Picture back then, were they choosing it in terms of is it all, you know is it sense is it clean and you know. I think that they had a dual purpose. I think that their one of their purposes was to was to um, um, filter movies and to make sure that nothing made it to the screen that was going to offend people. But then their other purpose, their more dignified purpose, was to try to judge and 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 give prizes to the movies that they thought were the most honorable. So you got to figure this is a lot of the reason why America's so fucked up about sex oh. because movies oh, yeah. started to present this weird idealized squeaky clean version and you wouldn't really this wouldn't really change much until I don't think the 70s but I did happen to look briefly on uh, YouTube or something about movies that were pre Hayes Code the Hayes Code uh, that was like 30 something 1930s something that it came uh, that they they put it down but the movies that that, that were released before that they're pretty sexy I love those pre-code movies. The really the code didn't the, the code didn't really crack down hard until around 1935. But the movies that were made between 1928 and 1935 are sexy and racy Seriously. and fun and flirty and they're really hot. Racy. I mean, they're really some fun movies. They're more more than you would ever expect because uh, you know, growing up, I always thought because they they're so censored movies. They're mm-hmm. so sanitized. There was a, one of the pre-code movies had Gary Cooper running around naked. I mean, full yeah. frontal. That, that footage, a lot of that has been lost, but I believe that, I can't think of who his co-star is in that, but her part got left in the movie, and you can see her, that movie still exists, swimming around underwater naked. That's so funny. I think I saw one where some woman was like in a bar, and she was hitting on all these guys. Yeah. Gary Cooper made such a splash in that movie that when Tallulah, Bl- when Tallulah Bankhead moved to Hollywood, they asked her why she was leaving Broadway to move to Hollywood, and she said, because I want to fuck Gary Cooper. <laughs> no, he had a notoriously big dick. I know, like, he did, really. And enough. people, it wasn't just notoriously, I mean, people had seen evidence of it on screen. <laughs> like the Ben Affleck of his <laughs> Is that amazing or what? <laughs> that is a, I remember growing up knowing that information about him for some reason. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I could never look at him the same way again. And you know when Grace Kelly did High Noon with him that they... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she, surprisingly, she was supposed to be pretty sexual, Grace yeah, Kelly yeah. was. And she always slept with her leading men, so you know she totally uh-huh. turned Yeah, I didn't know that until just recently about her, but she had a reputation for for being highly sexualized. Yeah, and Hitchcock plays with that idea because he, know, he knew she had the double side. You know? Yeah. But um, anyway, that's later. So I hope you've enjoyed our first foray into going back to the beginning of uh, the Oscars. We'll be back next week hopefully ideally to talk about the next year 1928 when it, when an interesting thing one last thing about 1927 is from 
1927 back to 1917 was the pinnacle of silent films reaching the pinnacle of the, the art form. And then all of a sudden, a rug was pulled out from under that. And it's like we go back to square one with talking pictures for various reasons we'll talk about next week. But talking pictures really set back the art of film in 1928. And that's why the movies in 1927 are really pretty spectacular when you look at them. In 1928, you think, what happened? Yeah. And what happened was sound happened. Sound happened, and that changes yeah. everything. And then yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people think about silent films and they seem old-fashioned to them, but really, like Ryan was saying, they were the pinnacle, the state of the art at that time. And then the jazz singer comes along, and it wasn't the first movie that had sound in it, but it was the first feature-length movie that had scraps of synchronized dialogue. And if you really break it down, there's only like two minutes of conversation that are that are synchronized dialogue plus five or six um, song sequences and the rest mm -hmm. of it is still title cards and exactly like a silent film but it was such a huge sensation and that was just the uh, the, the, the movies that we get to next week will be all, all talking pictures but they still made silent pictures even at that time and they're still great but it's just they're they because they're silent they, they're, they're perceived as being more old fashioned whereas mm -hmm. I think we'll see for the first four or five years of the 30s especially, that the, that the silent films are way better than almost anything being made on sound. And we talked about this before we started recording the podcast about putting your mind in the right gear in order to even to put yourself in, to be able to enjoy the pacing or endure the pacing of silent films because it's so different, it's such a different experience. It's almost like you have to meditate. You have to put yourself in a meditative state in order to enjoy, to enjoy silent films the way that people did at the time. But before we go, though, one more, I think you mentioned a minute ago, Sasha, about a controversy that sprung up about why they changed the voting, the, um, the method of voting. I believe one thing that happened is that Charlie Chaplin was completely overlooked. Right. He didn't win anything at all, although he was eligible for two different movies in 1927. That's why people tried to nominate movies from 1925 and 26 and 27 that Charlie Chaplin was in, and they had to send the ballots back to those people. But who, the guy who won Best Director, Best Comedy Director in 1927 was a guy named Lewis Milestone for a really cheap, tacky, slapstick comedy called Two Arabian Nights. <laughs> and when you compare Two Arabian Nights to what Chaplin was doing back then, people were outraged. People who had voted for Chaplin on their ballots, That's and then a guy like Lewis Milestone yeah. making some kind of cheap, you know, fart comedy, basically, you know. Um, that's there was a lot of controversy about that, and so between the time that the winners were chosen in February of 1927 to the time that the awards were handed out at the banquet in, in May of 1927, the Academy decided to create a special award for Charlie Chaplin in the circus yeah. and give him a special Oscar because there was such an outcry about that, and so that's probably what helped change the method of voting. So when you say, just to close out, my doggy mm. needs to go for a walk, but when you say, mm. people say that the Oscar race, the Oscar bloggers uh, turned film into a competition, really it's not us. It was already started way back then. You can already see the seeds of it becoming a competition as people decide what's best, what the word best means, and which films are worthy of awards to be called the best. And the competition starts with members arguing about it, and it, it'll spread out to critics arguing about it, and gossip colonists, and publicity people getting involved, and pretty soon, many, many, many decades later, Oscar bloggers. But the game has always been the game. The competition has always been the competition. Um, deciding best is never easy. It's, 
It's a hard, hard thing to. It's a great way to sum it up and a great way to relate what we're talking about that happened 85 years ago to what's happening today to really show that things have changed a lot, but they really have not changed very much. Right. And if you want to say, oh, people shouldn't, you know, turn it into a competition, there shouldn't be winners. Well, that's this thing was founded. They invented it in 1927. Yep. So, all right. It's been great talking with you guys. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to episode 74, part two of Oscar podcast, the first of our uh, Oscars in the beginning podcasts. We apologize again for the crazy sound. We'll hopefully have things working better next week. And you can follow us on Twitter at Oscar podcast. The bumper music was I'm Nobody's Baby by Ruth Edding and My Blue Heaven by Gene Austin, both from 1927. Thanks for listening.